Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Welcome to the pod, guys. And today I'm very happy to welcome Tony, who has only very recently joined the team at Hadinki as an editor, but previously gained much recognition within the watch community with his blog, Rescapement. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, Tony, and congratulations on your new appointment. Hey, long, long, Daniel. Thanks so much for having me. I feel like much recognition is uh, a little too much adulation for me, but I appreciate it nonetheless. And uh, before we get into me, I just want to say thank you, first of all, for having me. And then thanks for all that you do on the podcast as well. You guys have had uh, a ton of great guests over 120 or so episodes now. I think you do a great job coaxing interesting conversations out of them in a way that uh, not a lot of other mediums do. And you don't really have this pretense of only going after the biggest names and watches. You've had everyone from Roger Smith to, uh, well, to me, I suppose, and you have interesting conversations with all of them. So, uh, so thanks for all that you've done on, on waiting list for the past few years. Well, that's, that's uh, so kind. And thank you for coming on to the podcast. Uh, Tony, that's great. So if you <laughs> like, if you want to catch us on the next one, you know, because we're done. Because <laughs> that was just, you know, the greatest thing that anybody said. Yeah, you clip that out and that could be your new intro. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm not sure whether everyone knows this, but uh, you did mention this in your RIP Riskatement newsletter that you sent off recently. Um, but you actually started your career as a lawyer. So what is the training time for that? Okay, so I think it's a little bit different in America than a lot of the rest of the world, probably. But I did a typical four years of undergrad here in the States. And then I did management consulting for a year. And then I went to law school, which is another three years in the States. And then I I practiced law for four years. And then, um, as you're alluding to, for those who might not know, I I kind of started on the side a a little watch blog slash newsletter called Rescapement, um, which especially during the pandemic kind of took up more of my time and and took off. And uh, eventually I made it into a a full career, which is why we're here now. Mm. In that particular piece, um, you talked about how you could see, you know, what your life would be, you know, 15 years down the line, if you had stayed as an attorney, could you actually paint that picture for us? And what part of that life would be the most painful to live through? Painful might be too strong of a word, uh, but yeah, let me grab my paintbrush and I can try to try to paint the picture for you here. Um, you know, for most people, uh, being in the law is, is one of two things. You either kind of grind it out at a law firm, which is where I was at the time when I, I transitioned over to Hodinkee. And eventually after say eight to 10 years, you become a partner at that, at that law firm. Eventually you kind of have an equity stake in that partnership and you get paid a, a percentage of the profits every year along with the other equity partners. And, um, you know, it's like a lot of these uh, hardcore professional services jobs where it's, uh, it's pretty intense and, and all of that type of stuff. Uh, obviously the other thing you can do is um, kind of take, a, take the alternative route and, and work at a large company and in their legal department as an in-house counsel is what they're typically called, um, which to be honest, is probably the route that I, I was going down. So you can work at a, uh, choose your favorite large company, you know, a Rolex or work at an auction house and, and be their lawyer and, and work on all of their stuff on a day-to-day basis. So those are the two typical routes. Uh, there's a lot of variation as well uh, that, that you can 
choose, but that's the, that's the general path. Okay. And the fact that you could see that, does that turn you off? In a way, it it, it turn, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's reassuring and it turns you off, right? Depending on your perspective. I think I've always been kind of a conservative person. Um, I think going to law school is kind of a conservative choice in a way because you know the path and um, you still have to work hard in law school to make sure that you get good grades. First of all, to make sure you can get into a, a quote unquote good law school and then good grades so you can get a job at, you know, what's deemed to be a prestigious law firm and all of that type of stuff. But but once you're in, you're kind of in, right? So as long as you do everything that's required of you, it's it's kind of the conservative choice in the sense that uh, it's a traditionally prestigious thing. Mm. And if you tell your parents that that you're an attorney, they understand what that means and that you yeah. probably have a pretty good life. Um, and they know, you know, uh, they know what that looks like. Um, so it's it's kind of it's it's good and bad, right? I think the thing that turned me off about it in a way. It is all of those same things, right? It's very predictable. And I, I wanted to do something a little bit different and a little bit more adventurous with the rest of my life. Um, mm. So I think it, it did scare the shit out of me in a way that uh, I, all <laughs> I had to do kind of, so I live in Chicago, Illinois, and I, I live downtown right now, but kind of all you have to do is drive up to the suburbs and you can kind of see what your life is going to look like in 15 years. And it's, it, it's kind of, it can be kind of dull and un- uninteresting in a way, right? Uh, not to knock anyone who's chosen that life, but, uh, you know, listen, the, when the opportunity to pursue watches full-time came about, uh, not everyone gets the opportunity to kind of do something they're passionate about or do something that they think they love and make a career out of it. So it's an opportunity that I, I thought of, I thought a lot about it and it was actually harder than I thought it would be to kind of move on from the law because I'd invested three years of law school and four years of a career into it. But, um, you know, not everyone kind of gets the opportunity to, to do something like this. So I, I eventually jumped at it. And I think if I didn't, I always kind of, I always would have been wondering what happened if I didn't take the job at Hodinkee and, you know, how my life could have turned out. Whereas um, I do kind of know the opportunity cost or what I'm passing up of, of being an attorney. Um, but as a, as an attorney, did you find your work like easy? Listen, being an attorney, I was a corporate attorney, so I was doing sort of tech and media type transactions on a day-to-day basis. Um, it's not it's not rocket science, yeah. <laughs> especially at my level. Uh, you know, I was only there for four years, and it it can be interesting. Um, it's uh, it, it can be kind of mundane, but I think a lot of the job is kind of just showing up and um, doing what's uh, doing what's asked of you. I think. I was in an industry that's kind of fast paced and always moving. Um, you know, the stuff that you're doing in technology and media and that landscape is changing so much. Um, you know, just think about to use the watch industry as an example, watch media is, is so different. And obviously Hodinkee has done a lot to revolutionize that space, but that's happening in all kinds of industries everywhere. And there's, there's a lot of interesting transactions and deals and stuff that are done on a day-to-day basis. So it can be interesting. Um, I was doing a lot, for example, in the crypto space over the past year. Uh, so I kind of saw the rise and fall of that. Uh, so it's, it's interesting to see trends and stuff like that in the space that I was in. But at the end of the day, um, 
all of the deals and all of the agreements that I was working on and negotiating kind of have the same general contours to them. So it gets, uh, it can get a little bit repetitive in a way. There's obviously wrinkles and stuff to, to every deal, but at the end of the day, they're, they're all kind of similar in a way. Hmm. I think your answer really resonates to how I felt, you know, when I was sitting in the dental surgery, seeing all these patients and there is a kind of like a, a mundane thing about it, a routine thing that you get into. And I did actually try and extend myself because I thought maybe it was, it was that maybe I wasn't extending myself enough. And I went on to these extracurricular courses and, and did a master's. So I, I went even further down into this career, but trying to find almost trying to find the answer. The thing was, I think the answer wasn't there to be found. It was found, you know, in a, you know, I was going down the wrong pathway, uh, but at least by going further down, I kind of got a more more certainty in my answer. But the way you answered it really kind of resonated with how I felt at the time. Um, and the way you answered about how, you know, when you say you're an attorney and one of these uh, professions with heritage, you know, that seems to be as old as time. People are familiar with that. And that familiar familiarity gives a lot of reassurance to them, you know, that, Oh, you know, I know what it is, but actually, I don't think many people do know, unless you actually do the job, you don't actually know what it is, you know, it, you know, this quote unquote, good job for most people, they don't, they associate that with, oh, it must be like a, an office job, a nine to five, you know, he's not out there, like literally, um, you know, physically working in the sun. Um, and a good job is one that pays well, right? And I, I'm not sure that that's like wholly true. And I, I think that philosophy is even, you know, dare I say it, stronger in Asian parents' minds. You know, it's very, very, you know, difficult to get that kind of idea out of their, their mind. But that's my next question. You know, transitioning and, and, and spending this much time, um, you know, going down the law, uh, how did your parents take it when you said, you know, what, I want to write about watches? I mean, do they know much about watches? No, they don't. So I didn't grow up around watches at all. I kind of got into them um, during college and law school, just on my own accord. Uh, so I didn't grow up on them at all. And they, uh, you know, it, they were generally supportive. Uh, I think they were very, they were more objective about it. When I talked to them about it, they were, um, they really made me kind of think about the numbers and the pros and the cons of, of doing it and um, what my life might look like in three to five years uh, if I'm being a, an editor at Hodinkee versus being an attorney and what that might mean for uh, my life and my lifestyle and all of that type of stuff. Uh, but at the end of the day, they were kind of supportive and uh, I didn't tell them I was writing Riskatement right away a few years ago, but they did tell me that when they discovered it and you know they kind of thought the writing was was relatively good even though they're not interested in watches they they said that they said to each other that you know eventually tony's going to make this his career he's he's good enough at it um and obviously they they kind of turned out to be right and i think they were they were more so asking me um if this was the right time or if i should or if i should wait um for this reason or that reason um so they were good in really making me um question it and and think more deeply about it than perhaps I might have otherwise. I mean, I, I mentioned already that I thought about it pretty hard on my own, but um, 
they made me really question it instead of just, um, you know, Hodinkee is a big name to people in the watch industry, but to most people it's, it's nothing. So for me to say, I got a job offer from Hodinkee to them was like nothing, you know, if anything, it was a negative because it sounds weird. Um, so they were generally supportive. Uh, the, the more difficult conversation was probably with my, my in-laws who, uh, you know, <laughs> I've been married for a few years now. And uh, to your point, they were uh, born and raised in mainland China and came over here when they were um, for college or graduate school years. And um, it was more difficult to explain to them, I think, uh, what writing about watches and what this weird company called Hodinkee does and why I would like what conceivable reason I could have to go there instead of being an attorney and um, doing all of that. So both conversations were, were difficult, but, you know, they helped me. Um, both of the conversations did help me think through my decision in a more, mm. in a more thoughtful way uh, than maybe if I was just alone or just speaking with my wife that I, I may not have. Yeah. Those difficult questions are questions that you will inevitably have to face up to either now or later. They are going to come up. There's a reason why they're difficult. But, um, you know, could you maybe tell us like how your initial exposure to watches got you to writing Riscatement? Because, it, you know, it hasn't been that long. One, you haven't, like from my understanding, you haven't been into watches very long. And Riscatement, it just shows how successful it was because you, I don't think you were at it for like years on end, you know? That's right. And that's kind of one of the things that I was alluding to, right? It's like, what if I just stayed with Riscatement? Could that have become maybe the my avenue into watches? Um, because I was doing it for a few years, um, let's say four years, maybe, um, you know, at some points more, uh, more hardcore than others, uh, especially during the pandemic, though, over the past couple of years, I was able to dedicate you know, more time. And I was cranking out a, a newsletter or an article every week, sometimes even more than that. Um, I think a lot of people probably relate to that, uh, getting more into watches and, and having more time to research and write and all of that type of stuff when you had nothing else to do. And, uh, you know, making internet friends in a way I had not previously. And uh, it's weird how watches kind of became like a, a community for me during that time, especially. But yeah, I had gotten into watches maybe a few years before that. Um, like I mentioned, I didn't really grow up around them, but I was looking for something nice uh, to wear when I was getting married and, um, you know, kind of stumbled through these like direct to consumer Daniel Wellingtons of the world. And then somehow I landed on, on Nomos and um, I, 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 it was confusing to me because they're, they're 10x the price of, of a Daniel Wellington, right? 2000 versus $200. And Obviously now I would consider Novos an excellent value proposition, but um, <laughs> there's enough there to, you know, on the design side, their design was so appealing to me, the, the minimalism and the font and all of that type of stuff. And then when you flip it over, there's enough kind of finishing on, the, on a Nomos, even, you know, you, they use CNC or whatever they use, but there's even enough there on the movement side. And they've always got these Sapphire case facts. To, to draw you in and realize that uh, there's stuff on the front of the watch, there's the design and the history and all of that type of stuff that can draw you in. And then on the back of the watch, there's this whole world of movements and watchmaking and all of that type of stuff. And that was when I really started to, to think that there might be more to watches than these $100 watches that are on Instagram ads that I was seeing. And um, obviously, you know, you can kind of write the story from there, but um, Eventually, I fell into vintage pretty quickly after that, thanks to Hodinkee, uh, obviously where I'm at now. And I think 
uh, when I kind of discovered Hodinkee, they were really covering vintage in a way that no one else was, or no one else does still, um, you know, Ben Clymer had such a, such a clear voice and wrote about them. And, in, in, um, he always had a perspective, but it was always so informed by his own experience or by the collectors he knew and stuff like that, um, mm-hmm. that it made it so easy to latch onto and get into vintage. And, um, you know, that's when I really kind of started to fall for all of the stories that are in vintage and just like, you know, the endless rabbit holes you can go down researching and learning about vintage watches and all of that type of stuff. And um, yeah, it's kind of taken off from there, I suppose. My my interest and then obviously escapement as well. Hmm. Um, I think my question is in one of the articles, actually, I think it's in the article about the rest in peace, re-escapement piece. Uh, I mean, the story that you wrote, you wrote about how the side of like having to manage the uh, adverts and like the other side of blogging really frustrated you and you could just see time flying by so how does it like why didn't you think about just hiring someone to like manage that part and then you focus on the writing and then be and then just continue like because yeah he obviously does more ads it's just that I'm sure you don't have to focus on it right yeah it's kind of a chicken or an egg thing I suppose I only had a few hours a week to dedicate to um riskament and I enjoyed the writing part of it. And obviously that's why I got into it. I, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed writing. Um, but I kind of made it a goal for myself at the beginning of 2022 to commercialize it and try to sell advertisements on it. And I thought maybe I would try to do some sort of paid subscription in a way too, to see if that was a viable option. But uh, the reality is that was, it was taking a lot of time for me to develop, uh, you know, pitch decks to send to potential advertisers uh, or people that had reached, just like responding to people that would reach out to you in a, in a thoughtful manner and, you know, aggregating numbers and up, updating them on a, on a quarterly basis and all of that type of stuff. Uh, it, it takes a lot of time and I wanted to do it in a, um, you know, I was making a salary as an attorney, but I wanted to kind of do riskatement in a, in a bootstrapped way, I suppose. So I didn't want to, uh, I don't know. I wanted to kind of separate church and state and I didn't want to um, hire and pay someone without like already having the money. Um, I don't know. I could have done it that way where I, you know, say invested uh, 50 or a hundred thousand dollars of my own money in riskatement and, and hired someone to do all of those things. But I don't know. It wasn't the way I wanted to do it. Um, and part of that is also like, it would have taken me time to, to manage this person and work with them and all of that type of stuff. And it wasn't necessarily, I guess I'll take, take what I said back a little bit because it wasn't the money that was so much of a restriction on me. It was my time. Um, and, um, even if I had someone handling that type of stuff, uh, it was still going to take time for me to interface with them and say yes or no to things and all of that type of stuff. So, I was actually, uh, you know, I had some freelance writers over the past year that would write some articles for Riskatement. Um, so I was handing some of that type of stuff off when I could, uh, or when someone came with something interesting to, to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, like, I only had so much time in the day and Riskatement wasn't at a place where I thought it could support me full time yet. Um, and then Hodinkee came with the opportunity to, to be full time with them and, you know, that was kind of the opportunity that I eventually couldn't, couldn't pass up. Mm. Ah, you know, when you, I mean, did you start writing like paid kind of posts while you at Riskatement? Uh, paid posts. What do you mean? Like uh, sponsored posts. 
No, we had, I did advertisements. So this newsletter is brought to you by that type of thing, but there were no, there was no like sponsored content type of thing. Now, the reason why I ask is now, you know, that in, at Hadinki, there are sponsored posts and I wonder how that impacts on what was a creative outlet for you at Riskatement and just being able to put pen to paper and just express yourself to now you have to like carve an article out but it has, you know, someone's paying you for it, essentially, you know? Yeah, my understanding is, you know, I've only been there for a couple of weeks, but I think the sponsored content is driven more by the advertising side of the house. And I don't think editorial typically writes or works on that type of stuff. Obviously, it shows up on the hodinky.com main page, um, but editorial is editorial. And I think uh, the stuff that we write on a day-to-day basis is uh, editorial stuff and not sponsored content and um that type of stuff is um, separate. Okay, right. You developed a, a very unique independent voice with Riskatement that was, I think, quite refreshing for a lot of a lot of people, you know, at the time to read, especially during the pandemic. Um, How did you get so good at writing? Uh, well, first of all, you're too kind. Um, I have always loved writing. I had never thought seriously about it as a career. You know, I. I worked for my student newspaper for all four years of college, which is kind of nerdy to say, but, uh, you know, I worked there and, you know, one year I was, uh, I was on the basketball beat and I followed our, our college basketball team around and, and wrote about them on a weekly basis. Um, uh, so that was kind of a, an initial training ground, I suppose, even though my, my major and stuff like that was not related to journalism or communications at all, because like I said, I never seriously viewed it as a career. Um, you know, and then obviously in law school, it's all about writing, um, writing memos, briefs, contracts, all of that type of stuff. Uh, but they kind of try to, in a way, you know, obviously you become very good technically, uh, grammar, spelling, that type of stuff, but they kind of try to beat the fun out of you in a way um, to, to uh, you know, write in a way that's, they, they do emphasize writing in a way that's clear and concise and communicates the the story, uh, especially if you're a litigator, right? You're, you're telling the story of your client to the court or to the judge, um, which is a lot of what you practice in law school. So um, I think a lot of the skills are like more transferable than you might imagine. But I think there is a, an element of trying to unlearn some of the legalese or some of, the, uh, some of that type of stuff that you learn in law school and um, trying to stay true to, to a more clear voice that you may have had at one point, but kind of was mm-hmm beat out of you uh at some point through school yeah i found when i read your 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 uh, posts right i think what it feels is like it's like you're actually being spoken to yes like directly yeah. rather than you're reading an article mm-hmm. and i found that very similar to you know ben climber actually ben climber the way he writes is very you know has that kind of intimacy where he's you, you really feel his personality in it. And I could feel your personality in it. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I, the blog, as you said, was bootstrapped, but I think the clarity of your voice cut through so, so well and was so consistent as well. That's another thing. Across the articles, it was so consistent that I think, you know, would you say that was the reason of, of the success of Riskatement as well? Yeah, probably. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for saying that. Um, but yes, I think my number one focus was always trying to have a clear voice that was mine. I think 
I'm also kind of cognizant of the fact that like when you're writing an article, you're not competing with other articles necessarily, necessarily you're competing with uh, YouTubers and Instagrammers and influencers and all of this type of stuff. And um, number one, you need to have kind of a voice in the same way that say a YouTuber like Adrian Barker, I've always thought he has a really clear and enjoyable voice. You need to be able to somehow communicate that in the written word, which is more difficult because it's, uh, I don't know, <laughs> writing is, or reading is a little bit more boring than just watching a video. So you have to really be uh, intentional about developing a voice when you write to compete with all of the people that are uh, making content all the time on all of these different mediums. And um, at the end of the day, it was like, if I wasn't having fun writing something, then there's no way in hell someone was going to have fun reading it. So I tried to focus on just like, if I were talking shit about a watch at a red bar or something like that, um, or with, with someone else that I was friends with, uh, what would that look like? And not trying to be too serious about it because, you know, there's enough of that already. Um, and if you don't have something to say in a fun and interesting way, then, uh, like what's the point of it all? Hmm. We're going to look at one of your articles that you wrote because we particularly love the piece um called the digital death of watch collecting mm. how do you yourself make sure you collect in a way that is independent as possible from the effects of social media what a great question i'm trying to pull up this article because i can't even remember what i wrote um okay so this was an interesting article for sure um i think i've always been interested in how social media affects collecting um i think I tried to be on it a little bit less. Number one, I have a rule where uh, if I see a watch I like, I uh, number one, it's like the 24 hour rule where if you see a watch, you don't, you, you can add it to the cart or whatever, the, whatever it is, ask the dealer to hold it for 24 hours to see if, if you really want it um, or if you're just, uh, you know, being reactionary. Uh, so that's one of the things I try to do. Um, uh, what else do I try to do? I've tried to unfollow a lot of people that, uh, or just annoying, to be honest with you, uh, that are just posting like the same watches in the same way. Um, and I've also figured out, someone pointed out to me that on Instagram, you can, um, you can actually view your feed in a chronological way and it's not totally algorithmic. So I've, I've started using that more. Um, but the reality is I've tried to start to um, not use the feed as much and try to spend more time DMing people, talking to people, spending time in group chats and stuff like that. Um, um, you know, when I was doing Rescatement, I was kind of trying to broadcast it on social media as well. And I'm kind of glad in a way that uh, now that I'm at Hodinky, I can kind of take a little bit more of a step back. I don't think Rescatement was ever super social media driven. Um, one of the reasons I kind of chose the newsletter format uh, is, I don't know, it gives you an opportunity to connect with people outside of Instagram or whatever else. Um, and you, know, you connect in their inbox in a little bit long, more long form of a way. Um, I think social media is great in a lot of ways. I wouldn't have met you guys or a lot of other collectors without Instagram probably. And um, you know, in the early days of when I kind of got into watches, I kind of initially did it through forums um, not that like I'm, I'm an old early 2000s forum guy or whatever. Um, but, you know, even five years ago, I didn't have Instagram. So I kind of got on Omega forums and that type of stuff. And I still find Instagram is more welcoming in a lot of ways mm. than, um, than, than the forums are. And it's easier to find information and find mm. collectors you're interested in and find every niche of, 
of collecting. So I still think it's by far a net positive for the industry um, and for collectors, but uh, I don't know, it's gone in a way over the past few years, especially where you do have to try to uh, uh, shield yourself from some of the worst aspects of it. But you know, that's, that's life more generally too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would totally agree. I think it's so accessible. Uh, recently, I don't like the whole like TikTok style and the whole video, uh, you know, it's just like, I don't like that. But when I, that's what I'm talking about, Daniel, I had to yeah. unfollow a lot of the TikTokers, man. <laughs> yeah. Like, so, but it can be so consuming so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, and you have to be very clear, because if you go on with a kind of not a very clear attitude, it can really just take kill you, kill your time and kill your focus. And you forget why you even went on there on the first place. Um, cause it's just so accessible. My buddy, um, Charlie books on time who you may have had on this podcast before. Yeah. yeah he said, or he's, he's strictly vintage watches on Instagram now, yeah. but one of the things he said to me was, um, you know, it's fine to spend time on Instagram. Just make sure that, uh, every time you close the app, you've learned something. Um, and I think that was, that's kind of good advice too. Like if you're not, wait i don't know i've I've tried to live by that advice since he told me that i thought that was sage wisdom from our young charlie dunn i I heard um you have to use instagram kind of like a fridge so it's like what kind of food do you store in your fridge if you want your mind to be clear you put in like vegetables and fruits so i'm always looking at my instagram it's like who can i unfollow that would be like i guess like garbage (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. exactly (laughs) I do believe you follow a Barbie page though. Long, long I do before. Barbie style, but that you actually learn something though. And what do you learn there? Like style, fashion from Barbie. <laughs> the looks coming out of the movie from like a couple months yes. ago were were fire. <laughs> <laughs> right, we have a fellow like admirer of uh, Barbie dolls. Um, right. So another piece you wrote was um, actually a lot of the articles that you've written um, relating to Rolex have gained a lot more success. You know, why do you think that is? Is it just simply because it's the power of Rolex? Rolex sells, yeah, for sure. That's It's pretty much as simple as that. I think probably the two most popular articles I wrote were, um, it wasn't even something I found, but uh, Yahoo Finance got a quote from Rolex about why there was a watch shortage about a year ago or something. Um, And then there was a lawsuit. I can't quite remember the details of now, but some Chicago AD was being sued for um, basically kind of letting new Rolexes um, out the back door. Um, And I think those are still probably the two most popular articles because people just love they love Rolex and then the only thing they love more is controversy around Rolex. So, um, you know, it's what 25%, 30% of the watch business. And it's, um, it's probably 50% of the traffic of of most watch publications, I would bet. Except for this year, the moon swatch is, 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 has been uh, very popular. Did you write about the moon swatch? I think I did not. I mean, here's the thing, right? When I'm uh, a single operator newsletter, like I was, there's not a ton of value for me to add in a story like the moon swatch. So I would generally pass on just reporting about current events like that, unless I had something unique to say about it. And in that case, everyone had an opinion about the moon swatch and I didn't necessarily have anything unique to add to the conversation. So I don't think I said much about it ever. Is that because like, there's so much content at that particular time about that particular topic that it's hard to cut through that noise. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, part of it is cutting through the noise. I think some amount of people would probably have valued, oh, Riskatement has something to say about the Moonswatch. Let's see what it is. I probably, I probably underestimated my own sort of reach in a little bit in that way um, to a fault sometimes and not covering big stuff mm. like a Rolex release or a Moonswatch. But for the most part, yeah, I was always very cognizant of, about when I was just adding more noise to a conversation and I wasn't adding... Uh, actually interesting insights or analysis or whatever because i i I just want to say like i read a lot of articles where you kind of just when you're done reading you're like what was the point of that like (laughs) they're just like i just feel like it was a waste of my time that wasn't necessarily a point it was just a repeat of something else and then yeah so everything you i've read that you have written is like intentional and then it's funny and it's like okay I, I get it. That's your point of view. And it's very clear. Yeah. Yeah. And, and speaking to you on the podcast, by the way, it's so consistent with your writing, but like, I can mm. see why you write this way. I can see the personality there and, uh, how, you know, I can see the particularities that you have, you know, even in your writing and how you, you know, when you ask, when you speak. So it's the same person, Daniel. <laughs> no, nah, well, I don't know, because why is it that, you know, people like, Ben, like yourself, like Waco, they have a very clear personality that when you see their name on the article, you want to read it. Mm. Like forget the title of the article for a minute. You just want to read it because you want to hear their voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that's a really strong pull. Yeah. I think some of the best, well, I'll say enthusiast writers more generally. And I think there's probably been, even in writing on the internet, I follow a lot of writers i don't necessarily follow there are some publications i follow right like i've got the wall street journal homepage open somewhere but when i want something a little more analytical or in-depth or uh, an opinion i go to certain writers nowadays right this is in watches and outside of watches so i think um that's a general positive i think for for if you can establish a voice that's clear and consistent that people value um that's nothing but a good thing and some people have kind of make pretty solid careers out of just writing and, and writing in a way that's uh, their voice and, and clear and consistent. Mm. I, I was going to ask, you know, you start Rescatement as a kind of a side hustle, kind of like a side hobby, right? So now you're actually doing it as a full-time job. Are you going to start another side hobby? <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. Um, I was thinking like, if I don't find another hobby, uh, I'm just going to think about watches 24 seven, which is not healthy. So, you know, this time of year in the States, I, I play a lot of golf, I guess, but um, I'm kind of in the market for a new hobby because watches have been my hobby for the past, you know, whatever it's been five plus years. Um, and now that it's, you know, it takes up my day. Um, I, I need something new to kind of think about when I'm not thinking about watches. So if you've got any ideas, I'm, I'm open to it. Well, in previous podcasts, um, I've, I'm really into right now, not calligraphy, but trying to write properly. <laughs> I know that I couldn't say it like in another way, but I'm trying to write that beautiful cursive. So I've been like, um, you know, reading about pens and inks and, and like styles. And it's about having that discipline, you know, to rewrite that letter. And it, you just end up really focused on it. And um, I think there is a, I never really thought like this, but, you know, in the modern day, if you wrote something and it looked the way that it did, I don't know, a hundred years ago, that is kind of cool. That's kind of like classy. It's kind of, it's just, there's a lot to admire about that, you know, to have that discipline to do something. It's like watches, you know, we like watches and they have no functional use anymore. 
and then writing yeah you, you know just type on the computer so much faster it doesn't even even has like spell check and grammar check but to go back to that and, and spend time to do that there's a kind of romance to it yeah i get that you know i uh i had to take this calligraphy class in grade school i went to a catholic grade school and we had to like choose a chapter of the bible or something to write in calligraphy all right so i'm permanently i'm permanently scarred scarred. but listen here's the thing i like about this i've been thinking about this and like what would i want from a hobby and you know preferably it would be something that's not as expensive as watches and what i like about this is obviously you can you can get really into pens and markers or whatever you use to write your your pretty letters um but it's a it's a means to an end right and that that end is like creating a beautiful thing on a piece of paper Mm -hmm. right like Mm -hmm. if you're into hiking you might be really into uh ice picks or something like that or hiking Mm -hmm. shoes but like you're doing that as a means to to get to the top of the mountain or whatever it is Mm -hmm. um so i i like this idea because i think that's what i'm looking for in a hobby right is something that uh is not as I don't know, watches, listen, like it's about the community and about learning about the history of these things and all of that type of stuff. But uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's quite materialistic, I would say. So I like that this calligraphy thing, there's, um, there's, it's, it's all a means to an end, all of the consumerist yes. stuff. And it's also, one, like you, I think you highlighted a really good point in the fact that with watches, there's so much community, so much like discussion. But when I do this, I'm dosed by myself, you know, and I'm just doing it. And I think, you know, one thing I've gravitated to is finding passages in books or quotes, you know, in movies and writing that out. And I just feel the power even more, you know, of, of that, of, you know, that text. So, yeah, I, I'm really working on that. I haven't posted anything because I still think it looks shit, <laughs> like <laughs> my handwriting. But it's so much, it's so hard. It's so hard. But the fact that it is hard kind of, it's like, you know, that torture is kind of good, you know, in a bit sadistic kind of way. It's pretty sadistic of you. I understand that though. I've got a, I've got a physical notebook right here for the audience. I'm holding a mm-hmm. physical notebook, but I write down a fair amount of like quotes from books I'm reading and stuff yeah. in there. And I can only imagine you would have, it's interesting because you, to write something down, it takes amount, an amount of like a uh, curation, right. To think about, is mm-hmm. this really worth my time to physically write down? Um, and it's even, you know, ratcheted up a level if you're taking the time to, to do it in calligraphy. So I totally, I totally get it. I do it yeah. too. I think it's a, like, um, I'm like flattering, like, um, complimenting myself, but I think it's so <laughs> nice to like condense the whole book into like key points and then go back and then, you know, look at it and yeah. be like, okay. Yeah. Well, if I don't do that, I totally forget every book I've ever written. Yeah. So it's like, what's the point? So yeah, I, I totally get mm. that. Yeah. Well, there's always Blinkist. that's true (laughs) right anyway back to um you know your writing you actually you know some of your articles were opinion pieces but you actually studied like watches like the tudor Mm -hmm. ranger and the original showpod luc 1860 just to name a few which one did you actually like the most and why i'm lucky that like a lot of these watches that i kind of wrote in depth about i i either owned or was able to own afterwards uh after i wrote that chopard uh caliber 196 1860 article i was able to find one um i really i've really been enjoying that watch lately it's kind of just this quintessential round dress watch from the 90s for those who don't know um and they're they've become more appreciated i suppose over the past couple of years like a lot of neo vintage stuff but uh the story was kind of under recovered until I undercovered 
until I kind of wrote about it and people didn't understand quite how rare they were. Um, and I got, I talked to the heritage director at Chopard and got some specific numbers, uh, actual production numbers, um, because they were supposed to produce, I think, 18, 1860 of them in each metal of, uh, whatever that would be, yellow, gold, white, gold, and platinum. And they never even got close to producing any of those. Um, they produced probably a few hundred of each of them. So they're, they're a lot rarer than people realize. And people really like these watches. And uh, I've been getting into dress watches more lately. And to me, it's kind of a, this quintessential dress watch. Uh, but I've always loved the vintage Tudor Ranger. That's one of the first vintage watches I, I kind of really fell in love with. Uh, it's, uh, you know, and Tudor released, re-released it this year, which is kind of awesome. I, I thought the release was, was pretty well done, uh, even if I would have liked to see it a little bit smaller. But, you know, the Vintage Ranger was produced by Tudor in the 60s. And it's this, it, it's relatively rare, more rare than a Rolex 1016, which is what it looks like. Um, and for one reason or another, the internet is just rampant with fakes. And you'll see these red Ranger dials where Ranger is written in red text. And um, I don't know, it always fascinated me, like why this watch was so faked. And um, it, it seemed like there, there, there should be a, a article on the web, on the internet that went in depth on this piece mm -hmm. and um, explained it, explained the history and all of that type of stuff so that people weren't just buying these fakes on the internet for thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, and I think it's become a more recognized watch in the past few years and now Tudor re-releasing it. I think it'll probably do that even more so. Um, but it's just the story of a watch that's like, it, people didn't know much about it. And so for one reason or another, there were just fakes everywhere. And I, you know, hopefully I, I've helped out at least a few people over the years um, buy a legitimate Ranger and learn a little bit more about a watch that uh, it looks a lot like a 1016 at the end of the day, which is kind of one of the mo more famous vintage mm -hmm. watches, I suppose, but it's kind of this, like, it's kind of this, uh, I hate the phrase, if you know, you know, but it's kind of this alternative mm -hmm. uh, choice to a Rolex that people might not know about. How did you, I mean, how do you usually come up with these kind of articles? Do you kind of search for like watches under the radar and then you go and dig or someone comes to you and tells you? Yeah, good question. But how do you know? Because they're under the radar, right? It's <laughs> like, so do you approach the brand and they tell you, hey, do you want to maybe talk about this watch? It's gone both ways. I think sometimes there'll be, uh, you know, a, a cast off lot in an auction or something somewhere, probably at a small auction house that uh, I just kind of notice. And then I'm like, wait, what's the story behind that watch? And I, I'll go deep on it. Um, a lot of times it's watches that they're kind of, like cult classics in a way on forums or with, you know, hardcore vintage collectors or something, um, or they have this like really dedicated, but small niche of collectors that are really into these things. Um, the Tudor Ranger is one, the Chopard um, has become more mainstream, I suppose, but I wrote about this vintage Movado chronograph, vintage Movado in general, I feel like has such a cult following, but their chronographs in particular, I've written about and, and learned about and owned one or owned a few vintage Movados over the years. So it's like, discovering these niches of collecting that have this hardcore following and uh, figuring out a way to broadcast that to the world, I think. And it goes both ways. Sometimes it's me reaching out to people and it has been as well. People DMing me that are into this stuff and being like, Hey, Tony, you should, you should check this out. And um, mm. sometimes I don't. And sometimes I do. Yeah. These kind of pieces are so up my street. 
I think like the Chopard LUC is totally underappreciated for, I mean, it's an independent brand, essentially Chopard, but it's still family owned. And then, um, you know, when you look at the finishing and the sizes and the classic, how they're classically designed, yeah, just, you know, Chopard's one of those brands that doesn't do a lot of shouting, I feel, and it leaves you to kind of like try and discover it. It's wild. I think I was trying to think about this the other day, but I feel like of all of the big Swiss brands, maybe only Paddock and Chopard are still independent and still li- literally and legitimately family owned, right? Like mm-hmm. AP is independent, the family is owned, but they've got a professional CEO. Um, I can't think of any other brand except for maybe Paddock and Chopard where that's still the case. And it's been in the same family for, in Chopard's case, uh, you know, a watchmaker family bought it 60 or 70 years ago. And obviously the Stearns bought Paddock 90 years ago. So yeah, I think the story of Chopard is kind of, it's just so small. I, you know, I can't, I don't remember how many watches they make a year, but it's, it's not a lot. Um, and so I think people just don't, um, people don't realize it. And mm. some of the, some of the stuff they released this year at Watches and Wonders, is just totally wild, right? Like these Sapphire striking minute repeaters or whatever. Um, it's totally sort of, uh, theoretical for most people. Um, and they don't have, uh, you know, I guess some of their stuff has become more mainstream now, but um, a lot of people still just don't pay attention to it because their production is so small. Mm, yeah. How, how did you actually like gain watches to study, to write the articles? You know, you're not, uh, you know, when you're writing Rescape, you're not Hadinki. So it's not like you can just say, hey, give me this watch so I can kind of review it. So how do you actually gain access? Yeah, I, another part of sort of one of the things that I challenged myself with this year was uh, making connections with brands so that I could write about their watches. And I had say 10 or 12 watches over the past seven or eight months come through my hands. Uh, that's another difficult thing. I can I kind of only do one watch at a time because I was uh, kind of teaching myself photography as well in a way and trying to get at least passable at it in addition to writing about all of this stuff. Um, so I did challenge myself to reach out to brands and I've, I've worked with other people over the years too, if it's something more on the vintage or neo-vintage side um, that I wanted to get hands-on with, uh, talking to a dealer and trying to convince them to send me something. Uh, if it's one of these cheap under the radar watches, uh, you know, having them send it to me for a few days so I can play around with it. And then, um, you know, uh, that's, that's worked to, to some effect. So yeah, you're right. It is more difficult. And that's kind of one of the difficulties of being a small independent publication, I suppose, is getting the brands to pay attention to you and, um, and send you their watches. Though I will say uh, a lot of brands, especially some of the smaller ones, Nomos, I suppose, is one example, um, are, are great about working with small independent creators um, and, and figuring out ways to, to collaborate or partner with them. So aside from like gaining watches, you know, for um, your article, which was a challenge, um, did you ever suffer from burnout? Because this was essentially like a one man band. Yeah, I for sure did. I, there would be times where I wouldn't write for weeks at a time, especially during say the summer months when I was on vacation or there was just nothing interesting happening in the watch world that I thought was worth writing about. Um, I, a handful of times thought about kind of, packing up and calling in a day. Mm. Um, but I, you know, every time I kind of eventually there was, 
some piece of news or some release or something that kind of pulled me back in. Um, and I, you know, obviously I'm here now making a full-time career out of it, but yeah, I, I did suffer from burnout uh, at, at various times. The, are you the kind of person, because it sounds like it, that just loves like challenging and setting these challenges and like very task orientated, you know, the, this year I'm going to aim to do this and very, a lot of people do it, but it seems like you're really clear that, you know, okay, and realistic about the goals that you're trying to achieve? I feel like the answer must be yes, because I can't think of uh, the alternative. If I weren't that way, I don't know. I don't know how else I would be. So I think the answer is yes. Yeah. So do you have trouble like, like just cruising? You know what I mean? Because there must have no, been- No, I don't have a problem with writing. that. I, no, I, I can cruise, <laughs> Daniel. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, you know, I think it's like a light switch type of thing. When I'm on, I'm on. And like, now that I'm at Hodinkee, I'm, you know, hundred percent in Hodinkee. And I was, uh, I was sending emails for, you know, pitching new column ideas at 11 o'clock last night. Um, so once, when I'm in, I'm in, but like, if I'm on vacation or whatever it is, I'm, I'm yeah. totally off and I, I have no problem cruising. But okay. if you're someone that is very uh, goal orientated, did you start reescapement with a goal? Like someone was going to buy you out or like you needed to get like X number of subscribers or you were just like, whatever. Initially, no. Initially, it was like, kind of that, like I mentioned, I, I wrote for a newspaper in college. I did some stuff in law school as well. I wrote for the law review and stuff like that. And I had always had a creative writing outlet uh, in one way or another. And I found that missing when I joined a law firm. And initially, that was the sole goal for me was to have a creative outlet. Um, at some point, though, in the past couple of years, when I started dedicating a lot of time to it, uh, during the pandemic and all of that type of stuff, I did start to set some goals for myself. Um, metrics, I suppose, but more so like um, if I'm going to be investing this much time into it, I better be getting something out of it or have an eye towards getting something out of it. Um, and, you know, when I started freelancing for places like Hodinkee and a collected man, I felt like uh, maybe it could be a full-time career for me eventually. Uh, but you know, even six months ago, I never seriously considered that until Hodinkee oh, reached wow. out to me. Um, so, so event initially, no, the entire goal was a creative escape. Uh, but at some point it did kind of change into, um, I want this to, to be kind of a career for me. Okay. Well, when, when did you, I mean, we were saying that we loved the writing, you know, when I got, got aware of escapement, but when did you actually realize that it was, you know, you're getting the recognition from like Hadinki and Collected Man. How far were you into it? Uh, so the first time, the first publication I wrote for outside of my own was, was a Collected Man. And that was probably the beginning of 2021, let's say. And I had already been doing rescatement for a couple of years at that point. Um, and, you know, I'm self-deprecating enough to kind of like put myself down, but I kind of felt like my writing was on par with a lot of other publications, to be honest with you. So I felt like if I kept going, it would only be a matter of time until uh, other people discovered me. So it was helpful that a collected man who I've always held in high regard is putting together really great in-depth, well-researched pieces. It was gratifying that they kind of reached out to me and, um, you know, they write in a little bit different of a way than I probably do in the sense that they're, uh, you know, they're very self-serious British folks, I suppose. And, um, <laughs> 
it, it forced me to kind of write in that style in a way and put together like really well-researched in-depth pieces. To me, they put together some of the best articles and resource guide or yeah, resource guides and stuff like that on the internet. Um, so it really pushed me to be able to do that. Um, but I felt like if I could write for them, it was only a matter of time until uh, others probably reached out to me as well. And eventually I kind of got in with Hodinkee and uh, others, other publications too. But, you know, I probably like, if I had been more active in reaching out to folks, I probably would have gotten it quicker, I suppose. But I kind of sat back and just waited for people to find me, which is probably not how I would recommend it for other people trying to get into writing about watches. But I don't know, I suppose that's my personality. And in a way, I, I liked doing it for myself and I liked owning all of my content and writing about whatever I wanted and, and all of that type of stuff. So that's, that's the, that's the route I chose. Yeah. When I, when, when you told me your story in the prequel, you know, when I, I watch a lot of YouTube videos about, you know, people telling you, you know, how to make it or, you know, how to, they try not motivational videos. Cause clearly I, I need a lot of motivation, but um you know you should have like a main job that actually you know sustains you and make sure that you can live and then you should try and like get a side hustle you know to try and that try and make that work and once that side hustle does show some promising results then you have a decision to make which is do you either do that or just stick you know or do you give it a, a, like a more breathing time um and it seems like you yeah you did exactly that but when it did come to decision making time and i know we kind of discussed it earlier on in the podcast what were actually because i think a lot of people might be in your same situation at least you know some people can put a hobby and then they try and develop it you know very very passionately what were the factors that you prioritized in choosing to go full-time at hadinki and leaving your profession of law yeah, at the end of the day, it was just like, what am I going to wake up excited about every day? Um, and I kind of, I, I thought about it for a few weeks, to be honest with you. And it's kind of like, someone gave me this advice once where you wake up and think to yourself or pretend that uh, today I'm a lawyer and today I'm an editor at Hodinkee and like... <laughs> which one are you more excited about um, on any given day? You know, Monday, wake up as a Hodinkee editor. Tuesday, tell yourself you're thinking of waking up as a lawyer. Um, and which one are you more excited about or which one gets you up in the morning? And um, yeah, for me, it was, uh, it was, it was Hodinkee. Obviously, that's kind of why I chose that route. Um, I think at the end of the day, yeah, I, it's tough because a lot of people have passions and stuff like that. And you kind of think to yourself, like, am I silly for kind of trying to make a career out of a, something I'm passionate about? But, um, mm. you know, I kind of had the opportunity to work at uh, one of the larger publications in the space. And to me, um, I don't know, I guess I prioritize following my passion. Number one, watches and number two, just sort of creative writing. Um, and that was kind of the, that was kind of the end of the decision at the end of the day, uh, you know, forget the, you know, money and, um, whatever else. Um, I don't know. I was kind of okay with any other trade-offs there were. I see. Right. So clearly you answered that question by saying, you know, Hadinki being the editor at Hadinki filled you with more excitement, but what actually excites you most about joining the team at Hadinki? What is it? Yeah, I think, um, with the number one, like the ability to think about watches full-time is 
super exciting to me. And I've had so much fun being able to spend all of my time over the past two weeks now, just thinking about watches and flipping through old auction catalogs and reading old articles by Ben Clymer and stuff like that and learning about things or relearning things that I had forgotten. Um, it's been a ton of fun. And I've been able to talk to a lot of people too. I've talked to a few independent watchmakers that I just would not have made the time for. Um, and I'll be writing articles about them in the next few weeks. So the ability to meet more people and more interesting types of people, watchmakers, collectors, that type of thing um, has been great so far. And then I think just like the, the resources that Hodinkee had is, has is kind of the most exciting thing to me um, at risk game. And I'm kind of was scraping and clawing to, you know, reach out to one brand or put this or that together. And uh, at Hodinkee, they have kind of every contact you could need at any brand. Um, you know, if you need to source a watch for a story um, and then just like the monetary resources, I suppose, to travel, to pursue a story, um, to connect you with people you may not have even known existed, um, to talk to them about collecting this or that um, is, is really exciting to me. It, that long one, I don't know if you feel this, but it kind of reminds me of the Masaharu story, you know, yeah, I know. You know where he was like, he wasn't a lawyer, but he was in IT and spent, a, you know, quite, again, quite a few years in IT, uh, random kind of association with watches, um, because he was just killing the hours in his IT job. And, you know, started writing a blog, and he used his IT skills to promote the blog. And, again, he mentions... The same thing really that it was so difficult to you know liaise with brands and get that kind of credibility and that validation to be able to get pieces to talk about and then when hadinki came you know it, it was just a perfect platform to get his name out there it's very very similar actually mm -hmm. it reminds me of that yeah yeah he's the hodinki japan guy right yeah 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 i totally relate to that and it's probably very similar yeah yeah so what, what would you say your bulk of your work is going to be for Hadinki? Like, is there like a limited amount of articles you need to churn out every, every month? You know, how does it actually work? It's funny. No, there's not uh, any sort of word count you need to meet or, or article count you need to meet. <laughs> I think, you know, and, listen, you mentioned. And is very useful. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know how in school you would like increase the period size yeah. to make, you know, if you had a page limit, you had to meet kind of like that. Um, no, I think it's going to be, you know, they hired me because of what they'd seen at Rescatement, uh, you know, which is kind of my voice. And uh, it, it, there's a vintage focus, I suppose, but beyond vintage, just like a focus on traditional watchmaking, I suppose, uh, you know, vintage paddock, you know, vintage Cartier, modern independence, that type of stuff. But I think you mentioned Ben Clymer earlier, and, you know, I mentioned how I fell in love with uh, vintage watches through kind of early Hodinkee and reading articles from, from guys like him. And I think part of the reason they hired me is to bring back that voice or that core reader in a, in a fresh new way. Um, I think they, um, you know, Hodinkee's a lot bigger than it was 10 years ago when Ben was just blogging or tumbling. Um, but there's still a core reader that they want to appeal to. And I, kind of love writing about that type of stuff. So I think my goal is to cover a lot of vintage watches, a lot in the neo-vintage space, neo-vintage independent space. And, you know, obviously that entails some auction coverage, but I'm hoping to find some, some quirky, weird vintage watches and collectors as well so that we can kind of expand beyond, uh, you know, 
Paul Newman's and the tech perpetual calendars and that type of stuff. Because at that, at this point, we've, we've kind of told those stories and I think we're looking for other ways to, we want to appeal to that core reader that's been with Hodinkee for a while, but we need to reach new people as well. And my goal is to reach those new, new people and uh, show them why vintage watches can be so cool, especially. So basically you're there to replace Ben Clymer. <laughs> no, that's not, it's not what I'm saying. Uh, because number one, he's still around. And uh, number two, I think um, I've always been careful to try to emulate, not emulate people in the watch space too much because then you kind of just end up trying to be um, you just end up trying to sound like someone else and you end up not sounding like yourself in the process. Um, I find more, I probably find more inspiration from people outside the watch industry and trying to bring some of the voice or techniques I've seen other people use um, outside of watches and bring that into watches. Um, but I try not to emulate like a Ben or a, you mentioned way earlier because mm. people will, number one, the watch world is small enough that people would recognize if I'm trying to talk mm. about way, talk yeah. like way. Mm. Um, and so if you're not yourself, like people are going to see through that yeah. pretty quickly, I think. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's very easy to talk like way. But... <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's yeah. a bad example because he's a, he's one of a kind. <laughs> yeah. But you do mention a good point because it seems like from the outside, Hodinkee is going through somewhat of a change of guard with Kara, Stephen, and now Jack Forster having left and uh, Ben Clymer, you know, seemingly focusing on this uh, new golf kind of project. Um, how do you see Hodinkee evolving? I think, um, you know, they hired a number of editors when I was hired as well. And I think the goal is to... Um, continue to expand like the pie, if you will, or grow the tent, I guess, maybe is the better metaphor, get more people interested in watches. Um, and I think that means covering more types of watches from different perspectives, um, different genders, different colors, all of that type of stuff in a way that maybe we didn't 10 years ago, um, when the auction room that, that Ben was covering might've been predominantly European and white men. Um, I think we need to grow beyond that. And I think we are. Um, I think the other thing is uh, allowing editors to have a little bit more perspective too um, in their writing and not being afraid to sort of give opinions or give their thoughts on a brand or a piece and stuff like that. I think people come to us for you know, Hodinkee is kind of the paper of record now, nowadays in the watch world. Um, if there's a release, people tend to go to Hodinkee to read about it. And um, we want to report on that. Obviously, we want to report on the new AP release today or whatever it is. Um, but they also want our thoughts on the piece um, and they want us to be honest and share honest perspective and that type of stuff. Um, so I think those are a couple of the things that, uh, that we're hoping to do as, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, there's kind of a, a new guard that's been introduced in the past months or years. Yeah. Do you kind of, you know, some of those people that I just mentioned, they've been pillars of Hadinki. They've almost been synonymous with Hadinki, you know, for many, many years. Do you ever, you know, a lot of why you got into watches would have been down to their writing. Do you feel that, you know, it's an opportunity missed that, you could have learned from the old guard in a way i suppose but i think come from what i've gathered i've only been there for a couple of weeks but some of the structures and some of the the ethos i suppose that the old guard instilled in hodinkee is is still there right the way we cover watches the way we 
the way we podcast. I don't know. Stephen, for example, started Hodinkee Radio, and I think he passed the baton to James Stacy. And I think there's still a lot of um, a lot of Stephen in that. For example, like the way we think about interviewing people or covering a release and mm. stuff like that. Um, I think they put a lot of structures and processes in place um, that are still that are still there that are still on the editorial team. And um, yeah, I think it gets passed down from generation to generation in a way. And like I've read these people, I, I I may not know them super personally, but I've read these people over the years, and I do think about sometimes like uh, if uh, one of these older folks were were reading what I'm writing, would they be happy to see it on the pages of Hodinkee? Hmm. Now, now you have like a lot more power, a lot more resources <laughs> under the Hodinkee platform, right? You know, that you didn't have before. Is there a watch that you're dying to get to and to like cover? Oh, to cover? Um, I would love to get a, you know, I wrote a story about the history of the Cartier crash recently. Um, and I've seen a, a Paris crash, you know, there's like whatever, 400 of those, but I've never seen a London crash, a vintage London crash in person. Uh, I'd love to see and handle one of those and put one on my wrist. My understanding is they're a lot bigger than the Paris examples. Um, other than that, I can't, I, you know, this is kind of like the, what's your grail watch question. And I, you know, I kind of hate that question. Um, and you know, the reality is every season in the auction world nowadays, there's like a new amazing watch like this season there's the george daniels watch um which uh I'm, I'm really excited to hopefully be able to see in person at some point um and you know every season it seems like there's a you know last year i was in new york and there was this amazing pink on pink 1518 that had like literally never been touched and set in a safe for the last 50 years and that would never have been my answer two years ago as to what watch i want to handle but when i was able to see that in person at uh Sotheby's last year, it, it, it blew my mind. And I'm sure there are, there will be more watches like that uh, uh, as I start to kind of cover things on a more regular basis at Hodinkee. Mm. Right. One thing you mentioned just recently, just, just now actually was a podcast by, um, you know, Stephen, but you actually have been doing a podcast of your own called Significant Watches. Will you be keeping that up? Um, hey, thanks for the plug. We're hoping to. Uh, yeah, I mean, if nothing else, it's a way for me to talk to Eric Wind and Charlie Dunn and Gabriel Benador on a bi-weekly basis or so. I think during auctions, especially, hopefully we'll hop on the mic on a somewhat regular basis. Um, you know, we're all friends and we all have different perspectives on watches. Gabe is a, uh, you know, I didn't really know him before the podcast, to be honest with you, but he's such an amazing collector with such varied tastes in the vintage world and, you know, military issued watches all the way up to like, he has one of the craziest indie collections I've, I've ever seen or heard of. Um, Eric is, you know, the foremost vintage dealer in, in my eyes um, in the world, or at least in the United States. And Charlie is such a fascinating scholar of watches and he's a young guy like me. And it's been cool to watch him grow and be able to make a full-time career out of this thing as well. So uh, I, I hope that we're able to kind of hop on the mic on a somewhat regular basis, just as like four friends talking about watches, but uh, we'll see all four of us are, are, are busy folks. Right. Could you also give our listeners a brief introduction of, you know, what your podcast is about? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, like I said, right. It's for guys that have unique perspectives on watches. So like I said, Gabe's a collector. Eric is one of the foremost vintage dealers in the world. Charlie's a scholar. And now I suppose I'm the journalist and it's just us talking about watches every week. Uh, you know, we talk, I think significant watches, the name is a riff on, um, 
you know, kind of these silly auction um, descriptions you'll see, you know, significant, possibly unique timepiece, that type of thing. Um, Very and, rare. and auction auction coverage is really our bread and butter. And Eric and Gabe always have their eyes on auction catalogs and the market more broadly. So when it's auction season, especially, we kind of really kick it into high gear and try to cover um, the market and how it's doing. And then also specific lots that uh, uh, guys like Gabe might be bidding on or that we just think are interesting because of the story. Um, but when it's not auction season, we're, we're talking about that type of stuff as well. And we'll find other um, weird pieces of watch history to, to talk about. And uh, we'll, we'll comment on the news of the week as well. Sometimes we, we just talked yesterday and uh, we riffed on GPHG for a little bit. We didn't have a whole episode like you guys did, but we, we riffed on it for a little bit for sure. <laughs> I don't know if you get this right, but sometimes I can't believe that some of our stuff actually like people like it. Like, <laughs> honestly, yeah, people come up to me and they say, oh, or message and they say, I love it. I'm like, oh, how embarrassing. Oops. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you guys have been doing this longer and I feel like you, you for sure have a bigger following than we do just because you've been doing it longer and you're, you're probably better at it too. Um, but for sure, I've gotten off the mic with them and been like, oh man, like I kind of <laughs> want to text Charlie and be like, dude, I don't think we should published this one it was shit <laughs> and then we'll get texts or dms and we'll, they'll be like oh my god this is our favorite episode yet yeah yes yeah. charlie kind of makes fun of our audience right he's like these guys are losers they listen they listen to four guys talk about watches um uh in their spare time uh you know it's an endearing it's an endearing ribbing he's giving for sure but uh yeah it's yeah i totally get that right i'm on to my last question which is um you wrote about attending the Phillips auction in New York, uh, the one which had the Tiffany blue Patek. And at the time you said that collectors need to control the narrative right now, you know, it's the auction houses and dealers who are doing so. What would be a good way for a collector to start a conversation? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, to me being engaged in the community is super valuable. I think that's part of the reason I'm interested in watches and it's um I don't know I respect on one level collectors that are really private and want to be private and just collect for their own um for their own reasons um but I also really value those people that if they get a cool watch and it's got a cool story or it's just cool for because of the history of the brand or something they take the time to um do an in-depth Instagram post about it and tell the story about it you know um Horology Ancient is a really good example of that, right? And he's told the story of his collection and Paddock in the process in a way that uh, Paddock would not have otherwise. And it's really collector driven. And I think um, watches of espionage, I don't know if you follow this guy, but I just talked to him the other day on the phone. And he's a, he's a good example of someone who's telling the story of military watches just by telling the story of watches of, of guys he knows in the military or people that are mm. wearing these watches in the field um, in a way that a brand would never. And obviously, you know, the United States military would never. Um, so I think just engaging in the conversation and the community is a, is a great way of doing that. I think, uh, yeah, my point there was so often, like the stories we're fed are from auction houses and dealers, and we don't question them sometimes. And we kind of just take them, uh, at face value. But I think when something is collector driven and people are telling us about a piece in their collection, um, hopefully or oftentimes there's a 
less sort of motivation to sell you something behind mm -hmm. that story. And they're just doing it because it's something they love. Um, obviously people talk their own books sometimes, which is fine. Um, uh, I told you, you know, how great the vintage Tudor Ranger is for five minutes earlier. And, you know, it's no coincidence that I have one. Um, but, you know, I think that's more honest. And uh, I think that's more honest than like a brand or an auction house trying to tell you why X and Y, Z watch is so great. Mm. Mm. Well, that ends the main interview with you, Tony. I mean, that that flew by, really did. Um, I've always felt it a bit of a non-brainer, non actually, in getting you on the podcast. I just don't know why it took us so long to get our asses in gear. But however, um, I do think now that you're on, it's perfect timing and that you're, you know, moving up and, you know, onto greater things. Uh, as a listener of our podcast, you know what's coming next is the reverso round. So please let us know your questions. Okay, so I'm going to start with Long Long, if that's all right. Mm. I, um, you know, it's funny, I was reading your four plus one article on Hodinkee. Mm. And I was going to ask a question, you mentioned how you kind of got started with Chanel, J12s and Hublot yeah. Big Bangs. Yeah. And I was going to ask you actually how you view that part of your collection. But then I was scrolling through your Instagram page last night. Uh, and yeah, as any weirdo would. <laughs> and I saw this interesting, I think it's like a Seiko pendant watch or two yeah. Seiko pendant watches mm -hmm. that uh, I think Daniel is involved in as well. So I'm wondering if you could tell me about those watches and maybe the story behind them, if there is one. Um, I hate talking about the story in front of Dan because he's going to be smiling and it annoys me. But yeah, Dan, kill the video. Yeah, I'm going to edit his face out. But anyways, <laughs> It, long story short, it is gifted by Dan and it was a surprise, but I think it's interesting because I think if anyone has been following the podcast for a while, I've been trying to get into Seiko for a long time or Grand Seiko, like more specifically. And there's a lot of, um, I think, especially in an environment like Hong Kong, um, there are two types of collectors. There are people who buy the big brands and then there are people who are very into Seiko and they just stick with Seiko. And a lot of those Seiko collectors have always come to me and tried to, I guess, like influence me to kind of tell me like, if you're a true collector, you need a grand Seiko. And I've been just, I guess, kind of pressured or trying really hard to get into it, but I could never feel anything with it. And I and naturally drawn to yellow gold. So I started to look for yellow gold pieces. And then I remember when Dan was in Hong Kong about two years ago, we like found one and we were very close to actually getting it. Um, but even then I still thought it's kind of weird. I feel like I'm getting the piece just to prove to people like, okay, I, I truly appreciate all the brands. Um, I'm trying to grow my knowledge, but it just didn't feel authentic. So this is the first time that when I saw the piece, I thought, whoa, this is like an extension of me. This is like, a, it really is a good representation of my personality. And I've tried to find a lot of information on it. And to be honest, I'm still struggling. Like I know it's somewhere in the 1970s, they started to make these kind of pendant watches, but I don't have the exact uh, information. And I've asked like Seiko collectors as well. And they are like facing the same problems as me. Like no one can find exact details when it was made, how many pieces were made. I do know the yellow gold one is more rare and there's also white gold made. Um, but I guess the, mo the more interesting part is how Dan actually found the watch from a Russian collector. So I'm trying to piece that story as well. Like how did 
a watch made in Japan end up in Russia and then now in Hong Kong. So yeah, it was, um, there's very good memories attached to this. Dan, you might have a different version of this, but I was super touched. Uh, like, so like me and Long Long have known each other for a while, had known each other before the two years I met her in Hong Kong, but we'd never really like spent a lot of time together really. Um, and, you know, due to COVID, it was like, we just hung out every day um, because we didn't actually have a lot else to do. And, you know, you just, it's one of those very few occasions in life where you actually meet someone that you bond with. Mm. And I really valued the, the joy really of this friendship, you know, for six months. And, I, you know, there's not going to be many times in your life, especially at my age, where you're at your mid age and you get six months out to do whatever you want right and kind of get away with it mm. and one of those things was you know it allowed me to time to build this relationship with uh long long it had gave me time to you know start this podcast and you know how you 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 give something with the act of kind of immortalizing it in an object and so you know i remember you know she had seen this piece and i remember her how she looked when she actually held the piece and I remember, okay, she really likes it. Mm. And, uh, you know, compared to the other shit that she buys, which is like over like fucking 50K or so, you know, US, it's like, fuck, maybe I can get away with nice. a cheap one here. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, so I thought, you know, before I leave and go back to Shanghai and see if I can actually find it. So I went online, I found, you know, I went through everything. And then I found this dealer that had it. And it was one of those, literally, does this dealer actually have this? You know, I know it's like probably only a few people even know it exists, but I've got to make sure he actually has it. And it was just a very protracted kind of deal in the fact that the person was in Russia. And, you know, there's always that kind of, oh, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? Oh, fuck it. Let's just do it. Um, and yeah, that's thankfully, you know, it got here just in time before I left. And yeah, I, I gifted it to her. Yeah. Can I just say the reason why I actually never really talk about this watch is because, and I've never really mentioned this in any of my interviews. Like I have this persona online that's very public that I'm very comfortable like sharing my opinions, posting anything, but there's a really private side of me when it comes to family and friends or anything I actually care about that I just think, I don't think I should share this. Like, um, I actually have a lot of, I think, special things in my life, like even material things I would never post because they actually have a different level of meaning. So I think um, a lot of times when people ask me, hey, what do you care about? What do you like? I have like two answers. There's a really, really private side that I'm very welcome to share if I actually know you and I actually take out my personal time to hang out with you like in person and then there's that online side so yeah when I did the four plus one I was just like I mean I had some time to think about which pieces I wanted to choose but I also kept thinking once you put something out there it's there like forever so I have to be like very careful you know I totally get that I mean yeah. this is something a lot of people go through right it's like we're all on the internet and to what extent are we going to let others in? And especially, you know, a lot of people follow you long, long, like it's difficult to figure out where to draw the line for sure. And I think uh, 
I don't know. First of all, thanks for sharing the story. I think these are such cool watches and a cool story behind them. And um, you guys obviously have a beautiful friendship and I think it's fun for sort of listeners of the podcast. Obviously, like any success you've had, I think is because um, we pick up on that in your chemistry and all of that type of stuff. So, so thanks guys. Yeah, I actually like that. There's another guy on the podcast, you know, called Chester. He's a signer watch guy. Right. And, you know, I had a, I had a, well, I do have a good friendship with Chester as well. And he is a massive speedy guy. Right. So before I left Hong Kong, you know, he was another person that I wanted to say thank you to. Um, I mean, he paid for infinite meals for sure. <laughs> so I had to pay him back. But I actually got him the moon landing paper, right? Like the newspaper, um, you know, the full complete set uh, from, I think it was, it was a, I made sure it was a publication that is still in existence today. So it might be in the New York Times or, or, or something else, but it was something like that. And um, yeah, I gifted it to him. And yeah, he was almost crying. I, I still remember it. Like, you know, now that just a very special six months that was yeah that's pretty cool yeah right so what's my what's my question well you kind of alluded to it daniel you know how you were a dentist and you're going through a, mm. a career change that's not dissimilar to the one we talked about with me i'm wondering if you could uh number one maybe we're breaking news here on the waiting list podcast but what <laughs> how you're getting into watches on a, on a more full-time basis and kind of your thought process behind that yeah well um so for people that don't know and haven't listened to previous episodes yes in my previous life i graduated as a dentist within the uk and i practiced for eight years and um i guess you know in the family background i've been brought up you know being in the medical field is literally like the gold standard right so um i achieved that got the kind of validation from my family and i guess the recognition um but at the time, you know, I didn't know it at the time, I was miserable. You know, I was not wanting to go to work um, every day. Every day, you know, was just such a challenge. You know, it didn't mean I was crap at my job. I was very efficient, in fact. But yeah, it just wasn't doing it for me. So I tried to look for a way out. And the thing with the dentistry and with this kind of degree is that you're actually very limited. Yeah, to actually just being a dentist. Um, and, you know, you have to make that decision of being one at 15 years old, at an age where you really you don't have the maturity to, to make that kind of decision of what you're going to do for the next 50 years of your life. Um, and there was a hiatus in my career as I was searching, I guess. And part of that was, I, you know, I tried to change my surroundings. So I tried to do a um, master's course and then I thought, you know, that isn't quite right. just doesn't feel right. And then I, um, you know, changed actually countries and I went to Shanghai. And then that hiatus, that kind of period, that transition basically gave me the uh, time to really reflect on what am I doing, right? And I would say a rather painful metamorphosis into who I am today because you have to really strip away a lot of I would say traditional thinking and how I've been brought up and um, 
so I would say I was very lost for a period of like one or two years, not knowing really, you know, what to do. Um, but then I found like my joy in life again in watches. Right. And I, like you started writing about watches and I set up a blog within China and, and then, you know, I also set up similar kind of milestones on trying to get, you know, close with the brands and, and just not really letting any opportunity that was watch related go. So, um, and that was the only thing that could motivate me. Um, and then right there and then I thought, you know, this is, this is something that I want to be within. This is what I should be doing, you know, and it was never an effort then. It was always a sense of joy. And of course there were times which were difficult, but everything that I worked towards, you know, doing Shanghai Watch Gang and then Shanghai Watch Festival. Um, I've always wanted to do something, you know, have that independence of trying to do something myself. But then I recognize there's times where, like you, it does help to, you know, learn and from people that have done it, you know, and that have that credibility. Um, and that can actually accelerate your process rather than have to do it all yourself. Um, and so, you know, what you're alluding to is that, you know, I've just taken a job at like Philips, a role at Philips, which is basically the, the, the China kind of position. And um, I think, you know, I'm really looking forward to, to the experience of that and, and accelerating um, my journey. I think, you know, on my own, I think I, I reached a kind of plateau. And I, I think, you know, I've always been approached with opportunity. I mean, it's China, right? So everybody keeps coming up to me and saying, you know, let's do this, let's do that. But none of those kind of interested me. And I think this kind of opportunity came at the right time for me. Um, and we'll see, you know, where it goes. That's awesome, Dan. I think uh, that's what we in the business call burying the lead. So you're going to be working at Phillips, which is kind of the last thing you mentioned there, but that's awesome. I'm super excited for you. Obviously, I've been following you in the podcast for a while, but I relate to every single thing you just said in there uh, to a T. And I think, uh, I don't know, it's interesting, right? It's something we don't talk about a lot as people, I would say. You guys do a good job of keeping it real, I would say. And uh, talking about the struggles of finding out, figuring out what you want to do with your career or your life. And I think we're all around the same age. You guys might be a few years older than me, but we have this idea that uh, maybe our career should be uh, financially, re financially rewarding, of course, but there should also be some sort of, of love to it as well. Um, and we should love what we're doing, whether that's, uh, you know, starting your own thing like Long Long is, or, you know, like Daniel and me going into watches full time and following up as a, a passion of ours. Um, it's, it's not something we talk about a lot, but it seems like, I don't know, increasingly, uh, people are kind of going through this struggle and I think we should kind of talk about it more with each other. Like, uh, I don't know, and, and help each other through these types of things, because I don't know, we went through kind of a similar career transition, Daniel, and it's, it's just interesting to hear your perspective as well on how you were in a, a similar place to me. Yeah. I, I would say that, you know, I admire, what what you've done and because i know how much courage it takes to to make that decision and actually actually execute it and do that right so i would say that anybody's listening that just have courage in life you know um more often than not life actually sorts itself out and you'll get through but you have to kind of i kind of mentioned this in one of my posts recently you kind of trust in the process 
mm-hmm. um, and everything will kind of figure out. Yeah. But at the same time, just before we go on to the, uh, the pump push around, I didn't want to say, you know, I did announce it on my Instagram yesterday and uh, I received like an unbelievable amount of support from, from, I don't know, listeners of the podcast and people that are following my account, you know, my, my account's not that big, you know, not compared to long ones anyway, it's like 5k. Um, I just don't have a face. Um, but I managed to brush out quite well for the uh, Phillips shot. Um, but I was very touched, you know, that everybody that took their time out, you know, to actually reach out and say congratulations and just realized, you know, at that point where, you know, even to Long Long, some extent, you know, she's supporting me and there's a lot of people behind me that are kind of, I always feel like willing me on, you know, um, in this journey. So I just want to say thanks to everybody that, yeah, reached out. And even if you didn't reach out, you know, it's just great that you support me anyway. <laughs> okay. Right. I don't want to like bring tears to anybody's eyes. So we're going to go to the pump push around now. <laughs> okay. Uh, the first one, right. Tony, one thing you won't miss about being a lawyer. <laughs> Billable hours. Mm. A hours. <laughs> right. That was a very fast answer. <laughs> Number two, one thing you will miss about being a lawyer. Um, <laughs> I, it's a good question. I enjoyed um, using my education, I suppose. Okay. Using my legal education, I should say. Right. Number three, your favorite waiting list podcast episode and why? You know, I was listening to the one with Cole. You guys did two parts with him. I was listening to Cole Pennington recently, and I always think, um, obviously, another Hodinki editor, so kind of talking my own book, but I, I thought he did a good job. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, he did. Uh, number four. Something oh, Roger, it was good to have Roger Smith on, too, recently. I, you know, you have to mention that. Ah, oh, yeah. Yeah, I love that one. Yeah. Something that you'll always find in your fridge. Uh, LaCroix, sparkling water. A lot of people have that. That's the second I mean, person that said that. Yeah. 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 The next one, your go-to shoes. New Balance 550s. Uh, New Balance guy, going for comfort there. Oh, yeah. I'm a big uh, loafer Lung, guy, too. Lung, Lung, what, what, what's, your, what's your go-to shoe, actually? I mean, you're probably a go-to no, wardrobe uh, of shoes. Okay, no, no, no. no. Uh, th- like, definitely Air Force Ones. I wear them uh, often, yeah. Similar, yeah. Uh, number six, Tony. Your favorite author and particular piece of work you love? I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana. I've always loved Kurt Vonnegut, who's also from Indianapolis. Uh, American author, obviously. Uh, Slaughterhouse-Five is his big book, and I suppose that's probably the my favorite. Okay, can you give us a quick synopsis of what that is? I've never heard of it. Oh man, it's he's kind of a sci-fi author who kind of travels back and forth in time. And he, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, was kind of um, he was in Dresden when it got uh, basically carpet bombed during World War II. And it's kind of a sci-fi take on that experience in a way, and on World War II. And it's um, it's a fascinating piece. I don't know. Right. Okay. Number seven. Your favorite quote of all time. I pass. That's a tough one. <laughs> I had a feeling you might pass on that. Yeah. That's a tough one. Of these quotes, like in yeah. that book. 
so right. it's hard to choose number eight one annoying habit you have that your wife still can't beat out of you <laughs> well i'm biting my nails right now so i have a terrible uh tendency to bite my nails and pick at my my uh like hang nails and stuff like that <laughs> that comes to mind okay um nine your most prized possession uh i don't know if it's a possession but we just got a, a puppy so maybe that's the answer yeah okay no, no i'm surprised you haven't asked what it is yeah i'm i'm just like controlling myself but... okay so we got a corgi we got a corgi puppy and i think it has i think it has more followers than probably all of us <laughs> on instagram now and it's probably it's been active for like a month and a half <laughs> right number 10 the last one Name one person and another, if you mention family, you would like to give a shout out to for helping you get to where you have to today. Uh, obviously, my family, uh, you know, I've mentioned Eric Wind on the podcast. He was an early supporter of Rescatement. Uh, this guy named Michael Williams, who writes this, he's, it's a popular menswear blog in the United States called A Continuous Lean. He was supportive in the early days. Um, so as far as Rescatement goes, people that supported me early on, um, it was great to number one, have that support and the gratification that I was doing something right. Okay. Well, that ends the interview. Um, very, very, you know, enjoyable. And thank you for doing it. I know it's really early where you are and thank you for making time. And, you know, especially since you've just taken on this new job. Um, I look forward to reading more articles. I will actually actively look out for your name on there. Um, and I look forward to, yeah, giving you my feedback and yeah. <laughs> please. Do you know yeah. what? Though? Do you know what? <laughs> Yeah. Cover, you know, since Long Long doesn't know the like information about those Seiko pendants, that would be a great place to yeah, start. Please that actually is a good, uh, yeah. If you guys, so you guys don't have a ton of information about those, it sounds like, but that would be an interesting piece to write about if I could yeah. figure something out about these little things. Yeah. Long Long can get you the photos. I um, can, I can send it over. Um, yeah. Let me see if we can do some work on that. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, budget's tight right now. I don't know. <laughs> Um, but yeah, this was great. Thanks guys. I know, you know, likewise, I know it's late over there. So, uh, number one, thanks for having me on the pod and thanks for, thanks for taking the time. You guys have a, uh, a ton of great guests that you've had on the past. So I know you like talking to a Hodinky editor is not that big of a deal. So I, I appreciate you asking me on. Oh, no, don't say that. It's, it's been a real pleasure. And, um, yeah, we're not as snobby as we may come across, but, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you, um, to everybody that tuned in and stayed and stayed to the end. Uh, we'll see you on the next one. Bye. As always, thank you for listening to the waiting list podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at the waiting list podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.